It's a terrible feeling to not feel safe. Now, I realise that sometimes it's a bit of fun to feel a little unsafe. I get that that's what bungee jumping's all about and parachute. Well, I don't actually get it, but I understand that that's what people enjoy, feeling a little... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about really feeling unsafe, vulnerable. That's a terrible feeling. I know a guy who uh, served in the Vietnam War. He reckoned that was the worst part of the whole experience. It was just that constant feeling of not being safe, of, of always watching for the snipers in the trees, always watching for the tripwires in the undergrowth, always looking for any movement, always feeling even just down at the markets, uh, whether it's a woman or a child, not really knowing whether they're a friend or an enemy, just that constant nagging feeling of being vulnerable. It's a terrible feeling. Indeed, we hate it so much that we'll often cling to anything, anyone, so as to make it go away. Uh, my mate came back from Vietnam uh, addicted to painkillers and headache tablets. That was his way of dealing with it. This morning, the book of Jeremiah is going to take us into a time when Israel felt particularly unsafe. It's going to take us into a time when Israel were in a very vulnerable position and into this moment of history, God speaks quite remarkable words of comfort. And look, they're words of comfort that have actually echoed down through the ages to reach even you and I this morning. We're going to hear some words from God this morning that offer to you and I wonderful encouragement and remarkable promises of safety. We'll get to that in a moment. Firstly, let's have a look at Jeremiah. And and in particular, let's start by looking at the particular lack of safety that is pressing in on Israel at this moment. For this, let's go back a couple of chapters to chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashar, son of Malkijah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Mazar. Now, I might just have a little side here, two asides, actually. Uh, this is a different Zephaniah to the Zephaniah who gets mentioned later on. There's a book in the Old Testament called Zephaniah, different person altogether here. Notice also, this is a bit of a different word formula than the one that we're used to to introduce a new topic. Up until now, the word formula that Jeremiah has used has been that the word came to Jeremiah, tells Jeremiah to do something, and then tells Jeremiah to say something. We've noticed that a few times. Now what we've got is a word formula where the word comes to Jeremiah and then you get a specific date, a specific occasion. Uh, That's not happened before in the book. This is quite a change. I I have uh, quite a theory as to why this change happens, but I think it will take us off topic. You might want to chat about that later. Just notice that this is a formula that's letting us know that we're into a, a, a new topic. Verse 2. Inquire an hour of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that he will withdraw from us. Now, you've got a feel of the vulnerable position Israel is in. Uh, Their king, King, Israel's king, King Zedekiah, he's worried because Babylon is poised at the border to invade. Uh, This is about as even a match as America deciding to invade um, Fiji. Israel are seriously looking down the barrel of being completely overrun here. And so King Zedekiah, he sends off two priests to see if Jeremiah's got a word of encouragement from the Lord, which is a bit rich, really. 
I mean, up until now, uh, uh, they've been giving Jeremiah nothing but trouble. For the last 20 chapters, for the last 12 years of his life, Jeremiah has been telling Israel to repent. He's been telling Israel to get their act together, otherwise God is going to send Babylon to destroy them. Well, they haven't repented. They haven't got their act together. And surprise, surprise, Babylon's at the gate ready to destroy them. And now they want God to help them. Man, it is way too late for that. That horse has well and truly bolted. Which is what God points out to them. Verse 3. Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I'm about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in anger and fury and great wrath. If Zedekiah was hoping for a word of an encouragement from God, he doesn't get it. All he gets is the news that far from rescuing them, God is in fact the one attacking them. Uh, God is behind this invasion. He said he'd do it. Safety for Israel at this particular point in the text is just not on God's agenda. But as bad as that is, for Joe Average Israelite, it's actually even worse than that. Not only have they got uh, the Babylonian Empire breathing down their neck, uh, for Joe Average Israelite, their problem is compounded because their own leaders, their own king, their own politicians, they are useless which is basically what the first bit of this morning's reading was about back in chapter 23. Let me remind you of the first two verses. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you've scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. Now, in the Bible, it's really common for God to refer to Israel's king, Israel's leaders, as shepherds, uh, in the sense that they're called to care for the nation the way a shepherd cares for their sheep. The sad fact of the matter is that at the time of Jeremiah, the shepherds of Israel, their kings, their leaders, were in fact preying on the public rather than protecting them. Not different to many leaders nowadays throughout history. Israel's leaders were just using their position to feather their own nest. And so God speaks of them there as scattering the flock rather than caring for the flock. Now, if we had time, we could have read the previous chapter, chapter 22. And in that chapter, God actually names name people. He, he actually runs through the last few kings, calls them by name and says how hopeless they were. They haven't defended the poor, they haven't helped the needy, all they've done is rip people off, all they've done is line their own pockets. And if we had time to keep reading into the second half of chapter 23, we'd see that the prophets are no different themselves. Prophets, with the exception of Jeremiah, they're just prophesying false peace. Don't worry, Babylon won't hurt us. They're just, they're just saying what people want to hear to, so as to not upset anyone, so as to not jeopardise their cushy positions in the community. All of which means that if you're a God-fearing Israelite at this time in history, this is a terrible time to be alive. You've got a superpower poised on the border to invade and your own leaders, they're worth squat. They are only ever interested in themselves. If you're a God-fearing Israelite at this time, you are feeling very vulnerable, very unprotected. You are not feeling safe. 
And it's precisely at this terrible time that, that God makes a terrific promise of safety to come. And what you now get is a really very sudden, very unexpected feeling of hope that just washes into the book of Jeremiah. And it washes through the book in such a positive, unexpected way that it really is marking quite a big new direction in the book. It's almost as if after last week, you know, remember last week, Jeremiah was taken by God to the potter's house and there God made this incredible offer to Israel that if they would just repent, if they just get their act together and repent, he would relent. He wouldn't send the Babylonians against them. But, but, but as amazing as God's offer was, Israel amazingly turned it down. And it's as if after that unambiguous act of rejection against God, it's as if God basically says, well, okay, forget it. I'm not even going to bother asking you to repent anymore. It is over. Babylon, come on down. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something really different. I'm going to do something that just doesn't involve you guys, Israel, anymore. It's almost that that's the mood that sweeps into the book. And in particular, God promises here that the new thing he's going to do is usher in a time of safety and protection. Chapter 23, verse 3. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will... Bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. And they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, given what we've just heard about Israel's very vulnerable position, these verses are extraordinarily hopeful. A time is coming, declares the Lord, when he himself is going to come to the rescue. God himself is going to gather his people together and he's going to place over them shepherds whom he has handpicked and who will protect them rather than prey upon them. He's going to give them shepherds who are going to safeguard them rather than exploit them. At long last, they're going to have some leaders who will be interested in them, who will care for them. And in particular, there's one specific shepherd who is singled out for special mention. Verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, friends, it's verses like those two verses in Jeremiah, which gave rise to Israel's great expectation of a Messiah to come. Now, there's lots of verses scattered through the Old Testament other than these, but these are important ones. These are verses predicting a coming king, a coming descendant of David who will be righteous unlike the rest, a coming ruler, a coming shepherd who will nurture and care and rule God's people with love and justice and righteousness. And verses like these raised Israel's hope for a future salvation, a future time of safety. And so verses 7 and 8, they go on and talk about the fact that God's people, they're not going to talk about the Exodus anymore. They're going to talk about a rescue far, far grander than that. And for hundreds of years, God-fearing people clung to verses like these 
after the Babylonians were overrun by the Persians, after the Persians were overrun by the Romans, all, all the time. God-fearing people just hung out for these verses to come true, that a shepherd of God would come. And why wouldn't you hang out? I mean, wouldn't it be great to have a leader that you could actually have confidence in? Wouldn't it be great to have leaders that are different from the rest, different from the ones you see on the news? Wouldn't it be great to have leaders you could trust on to make decisions on our best interests, not their best interests? Wouldn't it be great to have politicians who made promises and just not keep them after the election? Wouldn't it be great to have leaders who would reign wisely so that when they actually tell you to do something, you could do it without a second thought because you know that the only reason they're saying it is because they've got your best interests? Wouldn't it be great to be led by someone like that? Well, we ought to know. Come with me to John chapter 10, New Testament. Let's think about how these verses might have been fulfilled. John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking. He's going to say some words that I'll bet you've heard before, but I'd love you to hear them afresh because of what we've just heard in the background from Jeremiah. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, he's not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep, runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, when Jesus stood up and spoke those words in the temple at Jerusalem, I reckon you could have heard a pin drop. Because with those with ears to hear, Jesus is claiming to be the shepherd God promises here in Jeremiah. For those with ears to hear, Jesus is claiming that he is the one they've been waiting for. Here is the righteous branch of David. Come to gather together God's people. And not just Israel. Jesus refers there to people not just of this, not just of this sheep pen. Uh, it's beyond Israel. Here is Jesus claiming to be the fulfillment of God's promise of safety to people even beyond Israel. It's a wonderful promise, given what we've just heard in Jeremiah, a promise of future safety. Because that is exactly what Jesus brings on a whole range of levels. I mean, first and foremost, we, we've, we've sung about it already. Jesus brings safety in our relationship with God. That, that's essentially what he's talking about there in that section from John where he keeps talking about being the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's, he's talking about his death on the cross, isn't he? Where, where he died in the place of his sheep, where he took the punishment uh, for his sheep. Uh, he took uh, the, the wrath of God that, that the sheep deserve. He removed the barrier of sin that existed between God and his sheep. And because, you see, now that barrier of sin is gone, uh, the followers of Jesus, his sheep, there's an assured, safe relationship with God. This is a sort of relationship that nothing can separate you from the love of God in. 
But there's a second dimension to, to Jesus' safety as well, isn't there? Because by virtue of a safe relationship with God, you can also now look forward to a new safe creation. Because come time, this present world, with all its threats and its uncertainties and its troubles, and its, come time, it's just going to disappear with a roar and it will be replaced with a new creation in which every single threat in this life will have vanished. Can you imagine that? Every single thing that makes you feel insecure and unsafe now, it's gone. No illness, no health issues, no conflicts, no tension, no insecurity. The New Testament describes it as a place of rest. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Just a place to rest. It's on its way. Days are coming. And the king over it will be Jesus, the good shepherd, whom Jeremiah describes as one who will reign wisely and do what is just and right and bring salvation and safety. But look, it doesn't end there. Because as well as the safe relationship with God, as well as a safe new creation to look forward to, there's a third layer of safety that Jesus brings, and that is the safety in knowing that you're just following a good shepherd. You're actually following a leader who has your best interests at heart. And in some ways, I reckon that this is the element that is most stressed in Jeremiah. Because it's the contrast with what was happening at the time of Jeremiah. That unlike Israel's shepherds at the time, this coming shepherd from from God, this coming king, this righteous branch of David, this one who turns out to be Jesus, he's a shepherd who's focused on his sheep. He's not focused on himself. He's a ruler who's coming to serve, not to be served. He's a shepherd willing to lay down his life for his sheep. He's a master who only has your best interests at heart. And friends, I reckon that even in this broken, unsafe world, even before the new creation comes, isn't there safety in knowing that you're following a leader who only ever says what he says? For our benefit. I reckon that's a very motivating thing. That, that is something to think about. I, I don't know your situation. Is there something in your life that you're actually holding out on from Jesus? Something you're not really putting your trust in Jesus about? Are you into your work too much? Are you into your hobby or something too much? Even though Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Are you getting a bit too carried away with just owning stuff, being financially secure? The house that, even though Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth. Are you holding grudges against anyone, even though Jesus says, love your enemies? Maybe you're just busy looking after yourself. You are basically selfishly preoccupied with you. Even though Jesus says, look, the first will be last. Last will be first. Maybe you just never go out on a limb for Jesus. You just don't ever take some risks for him, even though Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you've got to deny yourself, take up a cross. Friends, are there areas in your life where you actually are holding out on Jesus a little bit, not following through with what he really says and what you know he really expects of you? 
Don't do it. Jesus does not say any of those things to make his life any easier. He tells us those things so that we might have life and live it to the full because he's not your average leader. He's the good shepherd. He's not in it for himself. And that should motivate us to actually just do what he says. He's not going to let us down. He's a good shepherd. Very weird thing happened a few years ago in New Orleans. There was a party being held at one of the biggest public pools in the city uh, to celebrate the fact that it had been the first summer in years that no one had drowned at any of the public pools uh, in the city. And so with the summer officially over, a few hundred people, a few hundred uh, lifesavers all got together to, to celebrate. And it was a great party. So when it was over, someone noticed a fully clothed guy lying at the bottom of the pool. They attempted, they put him out, tried to revive him, too late. The guy had drowned, surrounded by lifeguards. All too busy celebrating their success to actually notice he's been in trouble. Friends, Jeremiah would want you to know, God is telling you this morning, that just doesn't happen with Jesus. God has sent us a good shepherd. God has sent us someone who never stops looking out for us. God has sent us someone who is never distracted from that. He's never off duty. He's never looking the wrong way. He's never caught unawares. He's never so caught up in himself or at a party that he stops thinking about his sheep. He's always focused on doing and saying whatever is needed for you to be the best person you can be and to live the fullest life that you can. He's the shepherd promised in Jeremiah. He's the one who reigns wisely. He's the one who does what is just and right. He brings salvation and he brings safety. Because it's a terrible feeling to just not feel safe. And you need not feel that when you follow Jesus. He's the good shepherd, you know. I'll pray. Father, thank you for the remarkable selflessness of Jesus as our good shepherd. Thank you for the safety that Jesus brings us in our relationship to you, that we can talk to you now directly as children. Thank you for the safe new heaven and earth that we look forward to. And thank you for the safety in knowing that we can actually do what Jesus tells us to, for he loves us and wants nothing but the best for us. Father, thank you that your son reigns wisely, justly, rightly, lovingly. Thank you for our good shepherd. Help us to be motivated to therefore do what he says. Amen.